Section 9 of the History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Rome, Volume 1 by Livy. Translated by William Masfin Roberts, Book 2, Chapters 8 to 15. Chapter 8. Laws were passed which not only cleared the consul from suspicion, but produced such a reaction that he won the people's affections. Hence his sobriquet of publicola. The most popular of these laws were those which granted a right of appeal from the magistrate to the people and devoted to the gods the person and property of any who entertained projects of becoming king. Valeria secured the passing of these laws while still sole consul, that the people might feel grateful solely to him. Afterwards, he held the elections for the appointment of a colleague. The consul elected was Spurius Lucretius, but he had not, owing to his great age, strength enough to discharge the duties of his office, and within a few days he died. Marcus Horatius Pulvillus was elected in his place. In some ancient authors I find no mention of Lucretius, Horatius being named immediately after Brutus, as he did nothing of any note during his office, I suppose his memory has perished. The temple of Jupiter on the capital had not yet been dedicated, and the consuls drew lots to decide which should dedicate it. The lot fell to Horatius. Publicola set out for the Veientine War. His friends showed unseemly annoyance at the dedication of so illustrious a fane being assigned to Horatius, and tried every means of preventing it. When all else failed, they tried to alarm the consul, whilst he was actually holding the doorpost during the dedicatory prayer, by a wicked message that his son was dead, and he could not dedicate a temple while death was in his house. As to whether he disbelieved the message, or whether his conduct simply showed extraordinary self-control, there is no definite tradition, and it is not easy to decide from the records. He only allowed the message to interrupt him so far that he gave orders for the body to be burnt. Then, with his hand still on the doorpost, he finished the prayer and dedicated the temple. These were the principal incidents at home and in the field during the first year after the expulsion of the royal family. The consuls elected for the next year were Publius Valerius for the second time and Titus Lucretius. Chapter 9. Porcina's Attempt to Restore the Tarquins The Tarquins had now taken refuge with Porcina, the king of Clusium, whom they sought to influence by entreaty mixed with warnings. At one time they entreated him not to allow men of Etruscan race of the same blood as himself to wander as penniless exiles. At another they would warn him not to let the new fashion of expelling kings go unpunished. Liberty, they urged, possess fascination enough in itself, unless kings defend their authority with as much energy as their subjects show in quest of liberty, all things come to a dead level. There will be no one thing preeminent or superior to all else in the state. There will soon be an end of kingly power, which is the most beautiful thing, whether amongst gods or amongst mortal men. Porcina considered that the presence of an Etruscan upon the Roman throne would be an honor to his nation. Accordingly, he advanced with an army against Rome. Never before had the Senate been in such a state of alarm, so great at that time was the power of Clusium and the reputation of Porcina. They feared not only the enemy, but even their own fellow citizens, lest the plebs, overcome by their fears, should admit the Tarquins into the city and accept peace, even though it meant slavery. Many concessions were made at that time to the plebs by the Senate. Their first care was to lay in a stock of corn and commissioners were dispatched to the Valsai and Cumai to collect supplies. The sale of salt, hitherto in the hands of private individuals who had raised the price to a high figure, was now wholly transferred to the state. The plebs were exempted from the payment of harbour dues and the war tax so that they might fall on the rich, who could bear the burden. The poor were held to pay sufficient to the state if they brought up their children, 
this generous action of the Senate maintained the harmony of the Commonwealth through the subsequent stress of siege and famine so completely that the name of king was not more abhorrent to the highest than it was to the lowest, nor did any demagogue ever succeed in becoming so popular in aftertimes as the Senate was then by its beneficent legislation. Chapter 10. The Story of Horatius Cocles. On the appearance of the enemy, the country people fled into the city as best they could. The weak places in the defences were occupied by military posts. Elsewhere, the walls and the Tiber were deemed sufficient protection. The enemy would have forced their way over the Sublician Bridge had it not been for one man, Horatius Cocles. The good fortune of Rome provided him as their bulwark on that memorable day. He happened to be on guard at the bridge when he saw the geniculum taken by a sudden assault and the enemy rushing down from it to the river, whilst his own men, a panic-struck mob, were deserting their posts and throwing away their arms. He reproached them one after another for their cowardice, tried to stop them, appealed to them in heaven's name to stand, declared that it was in vain for them to seek safety in flight whilst leaving the bridge open behind them. There would very soon be more of the enemy in the Palatine and the capital than there were on the geniculum. So he shouted to them to break down the bridge by sword or fire, or by whatever means they could. He would meet the enemy's attack so far as one man could keep them at bay. He advanced to the head of the bridge, amongst the fugitives, whose backs alone were visible to the enemy. He was conspicuous as he fronted them armed for fight at close quarters. The enemy were astounded at his preternatural courage. Two men were kept by a sense of shame from deserting him, Spurius Lartius and Titus Herminius, both of them men of high birth and renowned courage. With them he sustained the first tempestuous shock and wild confused onset for a brief interval. Then, whilst only a small portion of the bridge remained and those who were cutting it down called upon them to retire, he insisted upon these two retreating. Looking round with eyes dark with menace upon the Etruscan chiefs, he challenged them to single combat and reproached them all with being the slaves of tyrant kings and whilst unmindful of their own liberty coming to attack that of others. For some time they hesitated, each looking round upon the others to begin. At length, shame roused them to action, and raising a shout, they hurled their javelins from all sides on their solitary foe. He caught them on the outstretched shield, and with an unshaken resolution kept his place on the bridge with firmly planted foot. They were just attempting to dislodge him by a charge when the crash of the broken bridge and the shout which the Romans raised at seeing the work completed stayed the attack by filling them with sudden panic. Then Cocles said, Tiburnius, Holy Father, I pray thee to receive into thy propitious stream these arms and this thy warrior. So fully armed he leaped into the Tiber, and though many missiles fell over him he swam across in safety to his friends, an act of daring more famous than credible with posterity. The state showed its gratitude for such courage. His statue was set up in the Comitium, and as much land given to him as he could drive the plough round in one day. Besides this public honour, the citizens individually showed their feeling, for in spite of the great scarcity, each in proportion to his means sacrificed what he could from his own store as a gift to Cocles. Chapter 11. The Story of Mucius Scaevola. Repulsed in his first attempt, Porcina changed his plans from assault to blockade. After placing a detachment to hold the geniculum, he fixed his camp on the plain between that hill and the Tiber and sent everywhere for boats, partly to intercept any attempt to get corn into Rome and partly to carry his troops across the different spots for plunder as opportunity might serve. In a short time, he made the whole of the district round Rome so insecure that not only were all the crops removed from the fields, but even the cattle were all driven into the city, nor did anyone venture to take them outside the gates. The impunity with which the Etruscans committed their depredations was due to strategy on the part of the Romans more than to fear. 
for the consul Valerius, determined to get an opportunity of attacking them when they were scattered in large numbers over the fields, allowed small forages to pass unnoticed whilst he was reserving himself for vengeance on a larger scale. So to draw on the pillagers, he gave orders to a considerable body of his men to drive cattle out of the Escaline Gate, which was the farthest from the enemy in the expectation that they would gain intelligence of it through the slaves who were deserting, owing to the scarcity produced by the blockade. The information was duly conveyed, and in consequence they crossed the river in larger numbers than usual in the hope of securing the whole lot. Publius Valerius ordered Titus Herminius with a small body of troops to take up a concealed position at a distance of two miles on the Gabian road, while Spurius Lartius, with some light-armed infantry, was to post himself at the Coline Gate until the enemy had passed him, and then to intercept their retreat to the river. The other consul, Titus Lucretius, with a few maniples, made a sortie from the Navian Gate. Valerius himself led some picked cohorts from the Calian Hill, and these were the first to attract the enemy's notice. When Herminius became aware that fighting was begun, he rose from ambush and took the enemy who were engaged with Valerius in the rear. Answering cheers arose right and left, from the coal line and from the Navian gates, and the pillagers hemmed in, unequal to the fight, and with every way of escape blocked, were cut to pieces. That put an end to these irregular and scattered excursions on the part of the Etruscans. Chapter 12 The blockade, however, continued, and with it a growing scarcity of corn at famine prices. Porcina still cherished hopes of capturing the city by keeping up the investment. There was a young noble, Gaius Mucius, who regarded it as a disgrace that whilst Rome in the days of servitude under her kings had never been blockaded in any war or by any foe, she should now, in the day of her freedom, be besieged by those very Etruscans whose armies she had often routed. Thinking that this disgrace ought to be avenged by some great deed of daring, he determined in the first instance to penetrate into the enemy's camp on his own responsibility. On second thoughts, however, he became apprehensive that if he went without orders from the consuls, or unknown to anyone, and happened to be arrested by the Roman outposts, he might be brought back as a deserter, a charge which the condition of the city at the time would make only too probable. So he went to the Senate. I wish, he said, fathers, to swim the Tiber, and, if I can, enter the enemy's camp, not as a pillager, nor to inflict retaliation for their pillagings. I am purposing, with heaven's help, a greater deed. The Senate gave their approval. Concealing a sword in his robe, he started. When he reached the camp, he took his stand in the densest part of the crowd near the royal tribunal. It happened to be the soldier's payday, and a secretary, sitting by the king and dressed almost exactly like him, was busily engaged as the soldiers kept coming to him incessantly. Afraid to ask which of the two was the king, lest his ignorance should betray him, Mucius struck as fortune directed the blow and killed the secretary instead of the king. He tried to force his way back, with his blood-stained dagger through the dismayed crowd, but the shouting caused a rush to be made to the spot. He was seized and dragged back by the king's bodyguard to the royal tribunal. Here, alone and helpless, and in the utmost peril, he was still able to inspire more fear than he felt. I am a citizen of Rome, he said. Men call me Gaius Mucius. As an enemy, I wish to kill an enemy, and I have as much courage to meet death as I have to inflict it. It is the Roman nature to act bravely and to suffer bravely, I am not alone in having made this resolve against you. Behind me there is a long list of those who aspire to the same distinction. If then it is your pleasure, make up your mind for a struggle in which you will every hour have to fight for your life and find an armed foe on the threshold of your royal tent. This is the war which we, the youth of Rome, declare against you. You have no serried ranks, no pitched battle to fear. The matter will be settled between you alone and each one of us singly. The king 
furious with anger, and at the same time terrified at the unknown danger, threatened that if he did not promptly explain the nature of the plot which he was darkly hinting at, he should be roasted alive. Look, Mukius cried, and learn, how lightly those regard their bodies who have some great glory in view. Then he plunged his right hand into a fire burning on the altar. Whilst he kept it roasting there as if he were devoid of all sensation, the king, astounded at his preternatural conduct, sprang from his seat and ordered the youth to be removed from the altar. Go, he said. You have been a worse enemy to yourself than to me. I would invoke blessings on your courage if it were displayed on behalf of my country. As it is, I send you away, exempt from all rights of war, unhurt and safe. Then, Mucius, reciprocating, as it were, this generous treatment, said, Since you honor courage, know that what you could not gain by threats you have obtained by kindness. Three hundred of us, the foremost amongst the Roman youth, have sworn to attack you in this way. The lot fell to me first. The rest, in order of their lot, will come each in his turn, till fortune shall give us favorable chance against you. Chapter 13 Mucius was accordingly dismissed. Afterwards, he received the sobriquet of Scaviola from the loss of his right hand. Envoys from Porcina followed him to Rome. The king's narrow escape from the first of many attempts, which was owing solely to the mistake of his assailant, and the prospect of having to meet as many attacks as there were conspirators, so unnerved him that he made proposals of peace to Rome. One for the restoration of the Tarquins was put forward, more because he could not well refuse their request than because he had any hope of its being granted. The demand for the restitution of their territory to the Veientines, and that for the surrender of hostages as a condition of the withdrawal of the detachment from the Janiculum, were felt by the Romans to be inevitable, and on their being accepted and peace concluded, Porcina moved his troops from the Janiculum and evacuated the Roman territory. As a recognition of his courage, the Senate gave Gaius Mucius a piece of land across the river, which was afterwards known as the Mucian Meadows. The Story of Cloelia The honor thus paid to courage incited even women to do glorious things for the state. The Etruscan camp was situated not far from the river, and the maiden Cloelia, one of the hostages, escaped unobserved through the guards, and at the head of her sister hostages swam across the river amidst a shower of javelins and restored them all safe to their relatives. When the news of this incident reached him, the king was at first exceedingly angry and sent to demand the surrender of Cloelia, the others he did not care about. Afterwards, his feelings changed to admiration. He said that the exploits surpassed those of Cocles and Mucius, and announced that whilst on the one hand he should consider the treaty broken if she were not surrendered, he would on the other hand, if she were surrendered, send her back to her people unhurt. Both sides behaved honorably. The Romans surrendered her as a pledge of loyalty to the terms of the treaty. The Etruscan king showed that with him, courage was not only safe but honored, and after eulogizing the girl's conduct, told her that he would make her a present of half the remaining hostages. She was to choose whom she would. It is said that after all had been brought before her, she chose the boys of tender age, a choice in keeping with maidenly modesty, and one approved by the hostages themselves, since they felt that the age which was most liable to ill treatment should have the preference in being rescued from hostile hands. After peace was thus re-established, the Romans rewarded the unprecedented courage shown by a woman by an unprecedented honor, namely an equestrian statue. On the highest part of the sacred way, a statue was erected representing the maiden sitting on horseback. Chapter 14. Final Attempt to Restore the Tarquins Quite inconsistent with this peaceful withdrawal from the city on the part of the Etruscan king is the custom which, with other formalities, has been handed down from antiquity 
to our own age of selling the goods of King Porcina. This custom must either have been introduced during the war and kept up after peace was made, or else it must have a less bellicose origin than would be implied by the description of the goods sold as taken from the enemy. The most probable tradition is that Porcina, knowing the city to be without food owing to the long investment, made the Romans a present of his richly stored camp in which provisions had been collected from the neighboring fertile fields of Etruria. Then, to prevent the people seizing them indiscriminately as spoils of war, they were regularly sold under the description of the goods of Porcina, a description indicating rather the gratitude of the people than an auction of the king's personal property, which had never been at the disposal of the Romans. To prevent his expedition from appearing entirely fruitless, Porcina, after bringing the war with Rome to a close, sent his son Aruns with a part of his force to attack Aricia. At first the Arricians were dismayed by the unexpected movement, but the sutures, which in response to their request were sent from the Latin towns and from Cumae, so far encouraged them that they ventured to offer battle. At the commencement of the action, the Etruscans attacked with such vigor that they routed the Archians at the first charge. The Cuman cohorts made a strategical flank movement, and when the enemy had pressed forward in disordered pursuit, they wheeled round and attacked them in the rear. Thus, the Etruscans, now all but victorious, were hemmed in and cut to pieces. A very small remnant, after losing their general, made for Rome, as there was no nearer place of safety. Without arms and in the guise of suppliance, they were kindly received and distributed amongst different houses. After recovering from their wounds, some left for their homes, to tell of the kind hospitality they had received. Many remained behind out of affection for their hosts in the city. A district was assigned to them to dwell in, which subsequently bore the designation of the Tuscan Quarter. Chapter 15 The new consuls were Spurius Lartius and Titus Herminius. This year, Porcina made the last attempt to effect the restoration of the Tarquins. The ambassadors, whom he had dispatched to Rome with this object, were informed that the Senate were going to send an embassy to the king, and the most honorable of the senators were forthwith dispatched. They stated that the reason why a select number of senators had been sent to him in preference to a reply being given to his ambassadors at Rome was not that they had been unable to give the brief answer that kings would never be allowed in Rome, but simply that all mention of the matter might be forever dropped, that after the interchange of so many kindly acts there might be no cause of irritation, for he, Porcina, was asking for what would be against the liberty of Rome. The Romans, if they did not wish to hasten their own ruin, would have to refuse the request of one to whom they wished to refuse nothing. Rome was not a monarchy, but a free city, and they had made up their minds to open their gates even to an enemy sooner than to a king. It was the universal wish that whatever put an end to liberty in the city should put an end to the city itself. They begged him, if he wished Rome to be safe, to allow it to be free. Touched with a feeling of sympathy and respect, the king replied, Since this is your fixed and unalterable determination, I will not harass you by fruitless proposals, nor will I deceive the Tarquins by holding out hopes of an assistance which I am powerless to render. Whether they insist on war or are prepared to live quietly, in either case they must seek another place of exile than this to prevent any interruption of the peace between you and me. He followed up his words by still stronger practical proofs of friendship, for he returned the remainder of the hostages and restored the Veientine territory which had been taken away under the treaty. As all hope of restoration was cut off, Tarquin went to his son-in-law Mamilius Octavius at Tusculum, so the peace between Rome and Porcina remained unbroken. End of section 9